Guys, I am really excited um, to welcome uh, CJ Coffey tonight to preach. Um, CJ um, has become a good friend over these years. Uh, he's one of those guys um, that when I hang out, I just want to hang out with CJ all the time. My wife can testify to this. I just, I hang out with CJ and I'm like, I leave and I go, I want to be more like Jesus. Like CJ's that kind of guy. There's just a joy that's palpable. And uh, he's been a great encouragement in my life as a pastor. And so I'm super honored that he would come and preach uh, tonight, CJ is the pastor of the Well uh, Community Church, all right, uh, over in Portland, um, Northeast Portland. He's been the, the lead pastor there for 15 years, so uh, that's pretty rare these days, so um, that's amazing. Um, he is born and raised in Portland. Uh, he's been worried, married to his wife, Amy, for 22 years, and he has three children, Maya, Sydney, and Austin, ages 21, 15, and 18, so if you have some teenage kids and you want some advice, CJ is your guy. Go talk to him. So um, he's the guy I talk to. I don't have teenagers yet, but I'm, I'm, almost, I'm almost there. Um, but um, I'm going to welcome CJ up here right now to preach. And as CJ comes, I'm going to ask him. I, I prepped him a little bit ahead of time. But I'd like for you to just share with us maybe a couple prayer requests for your church, The Well, and for you. And then we'll pray for you as you bring us God's word. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, I, guess you have I have a mic. Oh, yes. Look at you. Special. That's great. Uh, Thank yeah, you for praying right. for yeah. me and yeah. for us. That's right. Um, as you, I just told Josh this, we had our first service in our building today in yeah. a year. Yeah. Because we had a fire. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, we had a fire a year ago in our building. And so um, anyway, today was our first day. So we're really excited. Yeah. And good. now we're super nervous <laughs> at night around our building because that's how the last fire was. We're all like a little bit yeah, jittery. Totally. Like, should we go check on the building? Yeah. Should we go check on the building? <laughs> So if yeah. you could pray that Absolutely. the Lord would just protect that, Absolutely. that building. Fantastic. And then, yeah, as we just get back in the building, just and the resumption of normal church gathering life, that God mm -hmm. would give us grace and wisdom in that. Sweet. That's good, man. Yeah. Yeah, well, let me pray for you. Thanks thank for being here, man. Lord, we come to you tonight, and we thank you for the well. We thank you for their uh, faithfulness and testimony over the years as they seek to be your hands and feet and your mouth, Lord, uh, in Northeast Portland. We just pray uh, that this would be a sweet season at the well. Lord, that they would see many come to know you, Lord, mm -hmm. uh, just through their witness. That they would just even see people walking in off the streets, um, empowered by your spirit, just mm -hmm. drawn by your spirit, wanting to hear about you, mm -hmm. Lord. And so we just pray that you would continue to preserve uh, this amazing church family. Mm -hmm. uh, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, protect uh, even their facility, Lord, uh, as a long year of being absent from that place. Mm. Uh, what a joy, I'm sure, just to be back in that building today, worshiping you together. And we just pray, Lord, that you would uh, preserve that property mm -hmm. uh, in a way that they would continue to be able to gather there um, regularly for years and years to come. God, we just pray uh, that you would bring about a tremendous amount of peace to this mm. church, Lord, that you would um, continually fill them with your spirit and wisdom, Lord, as they seek to live lives uh, in Northeast Portland. I pray for CJ and his family, you. that you'd be the wind in his sail, Lord, this, this week and beyond, mm -hmm. uh, that you'd bless him and his um, relationship with his kids and his wife, Lord, that they would have a really tremendous season as a family together. Uh, we pray now that you'd empower him as he preaches, mm -hmm. and we thank you, God, for your word, that you have not lead, left us to ourselves to wonder who you are and what mm -hmm. you're like, but you've shown up in the flesh, Lord Jesus, and you've said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Mm -hmm. What a tremendous um, 
mind-blowing thing. And so we just pray, Lord, uh, that you'd speak now to us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thanks, man. Greetings, Gresham Bible Church. So great to be here. Greetings from the Well Community Church, uh, where I serve. And yeah, when I first met Josh and started talking to Josh, I said, me and him need to be friends. Uh, there's life-giving friendships where people immediately you connect with. And Josh is one of those guys. Um, so I'm excited to be here. Our text this morning is a text, uh, excuse me, this afternoon or evening, um, is a text that our church covered a few weeks ago and learned a lot and grew a lot and was challenged a lot. So when Josh asked me to speak and thinking through what to speak, this is a text that I thought perhaps this will be as helpful as it was to us or to you as it was to us. And it's John chapter 11, verses 55 to chapter 12, all the way to verse 8. I'll read it, and then I'll pray. Please do read with me. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you, have, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Oh God, thank you for Gresham Bible Church. Thank you for the saints in this room. Thank you for the dozens of stories of grace represented in this room. Of transformation and forgiveness. The goodness of God seen in multiple and multiple ways. Oh, if we could all tell our stories, we'd all be weeping with joy to see and behold the power of the gospel in the crucified and risen Savior. And thank you, O oh God, for your word written to us. As Josh said, you have not left us on our own devices to figure your ways out, but you have recorded it in written form. In your Bible. Oh God, as we open your text, 
as we study this story that you have placed here for us, give us wisdom. And in my profound weakness and lack, oh God, help me to communicate this in a way that is accurate and helpful to the lives of the dear saints in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the ways I like to get at the meaning of a text is to ask a question. And I think an appropriate question as we dive into this text is, do we have affection for Jesus Christ? When we think about his life, when we think about his teaching, when we think about his works, what is our response? Are we cold, callous, bored? Do we offer the proverbial yawn like this is the same stuff? Are we generally unmoved? Or are our hearts, minds, and wills affected? Now please note, I'm not talking about only emotional response. Some of us, our temperaments are emotionally more expressive by nature. I'm at that place in life. I don't know if it's what I have a married daughter and I've just crossed this thing that now I, I watch commercials and I get tears in my eyes. Like, what's wrong with me? Last night, we were watching me, my wife, and our 15-year-old daughter watching the Great British Baking Show. I can't get enough of that show. And one of the guys, when he talks, he talks about his family. I'm like, my eyes are welling up with tears. What? I am just a weepy old man these days. And I look over at my wife, and she's welling up on some of these commercials. So some of us, by nature, are more emotionally expressive. But that's not what I'm getting at. Others are more internal processors when it comes to emotions. And both are good. I'm talking about whatever your temperament is, whatever your natural disposition to emotional expression, when you hear the teaching of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the works of Jesus, what effect does it have on you? Bored? callous and generally unmoved, or are our hearts, minds, and wills affected? The text today gives us a front row seat into seeing how the gospel affects a woman who has come to know Jesus. She's heard his teaching, she's seen his life, she's been eye, you know, front row witness to his work, and how it affects her and what her response is. Of course, context is important. Somebody can make the Bible say anything they want if they remove it from what's in front of it and what's behind it. 
the context, chapter 10, Jesus has left Jerusalem because the Jewish leaders are trying to kill him. Chapter 11, he goes back to the area of Jerusalem, about two miles out of Jerusalem, so historians tell us, to bring back to light from the dead his friend Lazarus. Again, he leaves the Jerusalem area because they are trying to kill him after this miracle. They're also trying to kill Lazarus, which brings us to the text today. Jesus is going back to Jerusalem where he will die. Context is important because it is this is his final journey into Jerusalem and the journey that will result in his crucifixion. Chapter 11, verse 55 and 57 kind of sets it up. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Passover, those not familiar, the yearly annual celebration uh, from freedom, from Egyptian slavery. Historians tell us that in Jerusalem at this time, there would have been likely more than two million people who had gathered into this, by our standards, small, ancient city. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves, a week-long process of getting ready for Passover. They were looking for Jesus. And saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. That sets up our context. It's Passover, Jerusalem is packed. People are looking for Jesus, wondering if he's going to arrive. There's a bounty on his head. If you find him, if you know where he is, you must tell us so that we can arrest him with that as our context, chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, which is about two miles from Jerusalem, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. We know about Martha in other biblical accounts. Uh, She serve. She's hospitable. She loves to make everyone welcome and have what they need. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. This would have been quite a sight. Those of you who've been to the Middle East, perhaps you hang out with Muslim refugees or immigrants, many of these practices that are, would have taken place in this feast take place today in Eastern cultures, it would have been a small table with a group reclined around the table, leaning back, most of them, cracking up, laughing, telling jokes, telling stories. And one of those at the table a short time ago was dead. Imagine if you're at the table. As you partake in the pre-Passover meal and you look across the table and someone else is participating in the pre-Passover meal and you think to yourself, he was just dead. And sitting somewhere near, perhaps next to him, perhaps across the table, is the God-man. Jesus, the one who brought him back. From the dead. This is quite a sight. 
in this sleepy little village called Bethany. And Mary is there. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, also translated expensive perfume. Nard, it is, quote, an extract from an aromatic plant found in northern India and Italy. So says Colin Cruz, a commentator. He takes this pound of expensive ointment or perfume made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Anointing, if you're not familiar with that language in the Bible, it's when they would put something, put oil on something as a symbol of it being set apart for something special. So she anoints his feet. She wipes them with her hair. You're asking, is that culturally normal for a woman to take her hair down and, and wipe someone's feet? It is not. This is a culture, and still is in many parts of the Eastern world, where women do not let their hair down, except among close family. So if it feels a little bit awkward thinking about it, imagine what it was like in the room where it happened, to quote a famous Hamilton line. Imagine what it was like. This perfume is broken, and Jesus' feet are being wiped with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume an eyewitness detail. We could smell it in the whole house. Mary had come to know and believe in Jesus. She had seen his healing power with her brother Lazarus. She was deeply affected. We did a had a Bible study with a group of women at our church and one of the ladies said this, and I asked her, can I please quote you on this? And she gave me permission. Ashley Larkin, by any cultural standards, this is an act of intimacy and expresses tangibly that Jesus is utterly worthy of our full worship as risen Lord. At the same time, it also indicates the kind of man he was as he walked about the earth, trustworthy and safe for women an embodied, redemptive presence, one who truly sees, end quote. She was deeply affected by Jesus, and she demonstrates that affection in a way that is demonstrative, unexpected, costly, emotive, and probably embarrassing. The narrative continues. Verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? That gives us a sneak peek of how valuable this ointment was. 
300 denarii would have been close to a year's worth of wages for an everyday laborer. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas dishonors Mary. He embarrasses her. He shuns her out of a deceitful, greedy self-righteousness. Jesus responds, Leave her alone, verse 7, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. The wording there is a little bit tricky, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. When in doubt, what does that mean? Scripture interprets Scripture. The parallel accounts make it clear. Jesus says she has done this to prepare him for his burial. As is the custom, as they would do with Jesus in John 19, they would anoint bodies with spices before they placed him in the tomb. And Jesus says, she is doing this to prepare my body for death. My wife, as we talk through this scripture I asked her, I said, what just strikes you about this scripture? She said, this story is ultimately not about Mary. Mary's a main player, of course, but it's about Jesus and his coming death. Mary unknowingly, providentially is preparing Jesus for his death. And the story closes with Jesus' words, for the poor you always have with you. But you do not always have me. Make no doubt about it. To care for the poor is important. It is commanded in Scripture. But it is not more important than knowing Jesus. Jesus Christ takes precedence even over good causes. A few other details to fill in the narrative that come from the other accounts in Mark, excuse me, yeah, Mark 14 and Matthew 26. Biblical authors have each kind of focus in on different details as they tell the story and the points that they're really trying to get at. We learn in their accounts in Matthew and Mark that the house where the dinner was owned was owned by Simon the leper, that the oil was also poured on his head. John, perhaps showing the degree of her devotion, perhaps preparing us for chapter 13 where Jesus will wash the feet of his disciples, shows that it was also poured on Jesus' feet. Jesus also, in those other accounts, talks about this being a, quote, beautiful thing that she has done for him and that this story would be told wherever the gospel is preached. Ha-ha! <laughs> and here we are, 2021 in Gresham, Oregon, telling the same story just like Jesus said that we would do. Important to note, in Luke 7, there's another anointing. Most agree that because the details are so different, this is a different one recorded by Matthew, Mark, and John. So we step back as we do as students of the Bible. 
and say, Lord, how do we live out its implications? Mary instructs us into what affection for Jesus looks like. Her actions reveal love, they reveal worship, they reveal thankfulness. It was costly, it was embarrassing, it was an all-in expression of devotion to Jesus. The apostles were often still doubting at this time. As our church has gone through John, one thing we've marveled at is how often they still didn't get it. But here's Mary getting it. I love great historical preacher G. Campbell Morgan said, I would rather be a successor to Mary of Bethany than to the whole crowd of apostles. Because she's getting it even perhaps before they fully get it. This response to Jesus, this expression of affection and devotion is elsewhere in Scripture. One of my favorite places is Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. With the Apostle Paul, his expression of affection and devotion for Jesus, saying it this way, 3, verse 8. For I have, uh, excuse me, uh, indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The life and teaching and works of Jesus being worth more than everything and anything else including if devotion to Jesus means suffering, give me the suffering. I've seen similar responses, this affection for Jesus and people I love and respect. There's a woman in our church, her name is Mindy. She works with our youth group. Mindy is in her early 60s. She's worked with students for well over 40 years. Very intimidating for potential youth pastors because she's on staff and was on youth staff before they were even born, as is the case in our church. She was diagnosed with Parkinson's a few years ago. I'll never forget about four or five Sundays after her being diagnosed with Parkinson's, her sitting on the front row same place she was this morning, hands lifted high as the congregation sang, singing with all her heart praises to King Jesus. I'll never forget that image of her worship in the midst of a Parkinson's diagnosis. 
I see it in Keith Hill, one of my fellow elder pastors at our church. When he talks about the power of the gospel to restore marriages. Keith's marriage was radically restored. So when people toss back at him, it's beyond repair. He shows anger. Because he says, we have seen utter transformation in the gospel. And he says it with such a conviction and devotion. It's inspiring. I see it in Scott and Ruthie Clark. Perhaps some of you longtime Oregonians have heard the name in mission circles. Their life's work is to translate the Bible for the peoples of the Sahel, which is the area underneath the Sahara Desert, stretching across all of West and East Africa, into Arabic script. Unbelievable problems and obstacles. Scott told me this week, there's a pile of Bibles sitting in a warehouse in Nigeria, ready to go out to an unreached people group. The scriptures in Arabic script, in their heart language. But the obstacles just to get them out of the warehouse and into the hands of the people are so many, and yet they continue to persevere. Affection and devotion to Jesus. I see it in my wife. I wish my wife was here. You guys would love my wife. Every day I walk through the door to our little house in North Portland, and my wife of 22 years greets me with this big, audacious even, smile. I don't deserve it. But because of my wife's utter devotion to Jesus, the way her heart has been captured by him. She gives to her undeserving husband the sign of affection and warmth, whether I deserve it or not, every day. I see it in the unmarried brothers and sisters in our congregation. And no doubt in the unmarried brothers and sisters in this congregation, many look upon the unmarried as if something is wrong with them. But the biblical reality is that so many are unmarried because everything is so very right with them. Because Jesus means more to them than companionship. Jesus means more to them than marriage. Jesus means more to them than sex. Jesus means more to them than fill in the blank. And so they refuse to settle. Thanks be to God for my unmarried brothers and sisters in the room for your inspiring example of devotion to Jesus. It's because everything is so very right with you. And I see it. Mary-like devotion in the faithfulness of congregations and the faithfulness of pastors during this season. If you haven't heard, 
this has been a rough go for pastors. Mark Dever, a well-respected pastor in D.C., I listened to a podcast and heard him say in his lifetime, and he's in his 60s, he estimated, this was at the end of 2020, he said this, that more pastors will have quit in 2020 than at any point in his lifetime. Pandemic, and how do you navigate the pandemic? Racial tension, and how do you navigate racial tension? Political disagreement. And then, to really make it nasty, the fuel of social media that has brought division to churches and families all over the country. And many are throwing in the towel. But some are sticking it out. Some congregations are still showing up, committed to the local gathering, committed to the biblical truth that God's means of displaying His glory in all the earth is through the gathered local congregation. And so, you're here. Affection and devotion towards Jesus Christ. Allow me to close with this. With Mary as our instructive example, four diagnostic questions, if you will. Rather than legalistically saying, devotion to Jesus looks like this. Four questions to ask ourselves to examine our hearts in light of Mary's example. Question one, in light of Mary's instructive example, a heart, an act of devotion, when I consider the person and work of Jesus Christ, is my heart warm and alive or cold and dead? Does the gospel bore me? May I submit to you, dear saints at Gresham Bible Church, that if you're bored with the gospel, you might not know the gospel. Not based on emotions, but in how you live, think, talk, act, and feel. Are you warm and alive to the gospel? Or are you cold and bored? If you're brave, we ask this of our congregation, your homework is to ask those closest to you. Dear friend, dear spouse, dear son, dear daughter, dear co-worker, dear brother, dear sister, dear small group leader, is my heart warm and alive to the gospel in your experience? Or am I cold and bored? Secondly, and this is based on verse 8, another diagnostic question. Is there a cause or a person that means more to me than Jesus Christ? If you will permit me, to step into sensitive waters, 
The evidence of the last 18 months would say that there are many Christians whose cause or people have more of their affections than Jesus Christ. Those whose primary love is constitutional rights and freedom. Those whose primary love is the pursuit of justice, as good as that is. Those whose primary love, quite frankly, is themselves. They simply love to hear themselves talk and wax eloquently. Kevin DeYoung, writer, pastor, author, says this, quote, Do people know what you think of everything? They shouldn't. That's why you have a journal or a prayer closet or a dog. But this cultural moment within, that we're in has made it seem like it's appropriate that everything you think about everything needs to be told to everybody. But that is arrogant ridiculousness. And so for so many, conviction, let me say what I need to say. All it's doing is masking selfish ambition. People whose primary love is themselves. Now don't get me wrong. Rights, justice, these are not unimportant and in many cases, biblical. But if these things have our primary affections, rather than Jesus Christ, something will be off and wrong in our faith. And the last 18 months has indicated that for many dear saints in this great country of ours, something in their faith has gone askew. Remember the Pharisees. This text is set up by the Pharisaical persecution of Jesus. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 55. It's set up by their persecution of Jesus. They're so zealous for their religion, for their power, for their rules, for their convictions, that they are about to kill the very one whom their very faith is about. Is it possible to be so passionate about the wrong things that we miss the point? Is there a cause or a person, I submit to you, dear saints, that means more to you than Jesus Christ? Thirdly, from the text, particularly using the example of the Pharisees in this text, contrasting that with Mary, is my faith defined by love for Christ or by the keeping and breaking of rules. It's a good barometer for affection and devotion to Jesus. So many of us, I think particularly those who've been a believer for a long time, or those who've been raised in the church, we can easily start to define our faith by rules. Following Jesus means I can't fill in the blank. Following Jesus means I can't do this or do that. It's a very Pharisaical situation. With the Pharisees, it's about what you do and do not do. 
So it doesn't matter that Jesus is restoring someone's health. He's doing it on the Sabbath. Hey, uh, Pharisees, my man hasn't been able to walk like for 38 years. Like he, he's walking, right? Like it doesn't matter that he's walking. How can he heal him on the Sabbath? And why is that guy carrying his mat? Doesn't he know you're not supposed to carry your mat on the Sabbath? I wish I could be making this stuff up, but this is in the Bible. A mature Christian, a Christian who, like Mary, shows affection and devotion for Jesus, does not understand the Christian faith as a ball and chain duty to obey him, does not define their faith by what you can or cannot do. No, a mature Christian understands that to follow Jesus is a joyful privilege that God has given you the gift to obey Him. That God has blessed me by saying, stay faithful to your wife. What a gift. That God has granted me the gift of putting others in front of myself. On and on go the biblical commands which for the Christian are a joyful privilege. Fourthly and finally, a diagnostic question is what I am doing with my life out of devotion to Jesus. When I think about my job, when I think about my schooling, when I think about my relationships, Am I doing things out of devotion to Jesus? If you're a student, as I've told my kids so much, it annoys them to death. Knock out that algebra like your life depended on it because you're doing it as unto Jesus. If you're working in a restaurant kitchen like one of my kids is and washing dishes for four hours straight, come home looking like you just got out the shower even though you're fully clothed because you're washing those dishes, wash those dishes like a champ out of devotion to Jesus. Think about your job. Think about your schooling. Think about your relationships is how I am doing those things that God has providentially placed in front of me out of devotion to Jesus. Homework. This week, in response to Mary's instructive example, do one thing out of intentional devotion and affection for Jesus Christ. Amen? What a gift to be with you. God, submit this to you. May your word be helpful. Of course your word is helpful. May my words of your word be helpful. And help us to obey all its meaning and purpose and intent in being recorded for us. In Jesus' name, amen.